Does the Old Testament teach the Trinity? What about the Shema that clearly says God is one? Does that deny the Trinity? And also, how does it reconcile the verses that say God can't be seen with the ones that say people saw God? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran with Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. These questions and more are what we're going to answer in our lesson today entitled, Understanding the Trinity, Part 3, The Trinity Throughout the Bible. Let me briefly review where we've been. Understanding the Trinity, Part 1, we looked at the persons of the Trinity, how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are uncreated, co-equal, and eternal persons. In the second lesson, Understanding the Trinity, Part 2, we looked at the one substance of the Trinity and the attributes shared by the members of the Trinity and what they mean to us. And then in this lesson, we're going to look at the descriptions and roles of the Trinity in the Old and New Testaments. Now please go to www.bible805.com because I have a lot of notes, I have links to videos, podcast charts, and and additional resource material on this topic. The Trinity is so important and I really want you to get the most out of it and I have a lot of resources there for you. Now before we get into this lesson, I want to answer a question. Why does God make things like the Trinity so hard to understand. I was asked this by someone as I taught the first class in this series, and many people wonder about this. I think the answer is the same Jesus gave when he was talking to the Pharisees and they had incorrect ideas about God and the resurrection when he said in Matthew 22:29, where Jesus replied and said, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Answers to questions about God seem difficult because we simply don't know what the Bible says about these important topics. It isn't a matter of God attempting to confuse us. It's a matter of the priorities of our life. The answers that we need for everything, for life, death, eternity, what to do now, for hope, whatever question we have, they are in the Bible. However, We need to read it, to study it, to research, to learn from it, to discuss the topics that are in it that relate to God and to us. And we need to be prepared to obey and trust Him, even if we don't like the answers. You cannot expect to have a solid faith, a solid grounding in your Christian life by just reading a nice devotional thought or pulling out a verse here or there. That won't do it. This in-depth study is what I try to help you do in Bible 805. And please check out all of the different lessons. There are many of them available for you. But now let's get into what a lot of people think is one of the toughest subjects, but which I said in the first one, it really isn't that hard to understand if you study it. And that's the subject of the Trinity. Now, from the beginning, the Old Testament talks about the Trinity. Many people are familiar with Genesis 1-1, where it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the word God in that verse is in plural form. It is the Hebrew word Elohim. It is a plural, masculine noun. In the Hebrew word that follows it, bara, where God made, that's a singular verb. So you have a plural group doing one action. 
The same word is used in the passage where it says, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our own image to be like us. This is Genesis 1.26, where God is clearly a plurality of persons. Well, we're familiar with those passages, but what about the Shema? The defining phrase of the Jewish faith, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. At first reading, it's hard to see any evidence of the Trinity in this, and many use this verse to deny the existence of the Trinity. But let's look at what the verse actually says. Let's look closely at the words in it. First, let's look at the word one. Now, the word one in the Hebrew is the word ehad, and it's used, that's the one that's used in the Shema, and it actually can be used to contain multiple entities in the oneness that makes the multiple entities one. Here are some other places it's used in the Bible. In Genesis 11.6, it says, And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one. Obviously, there are many different individuals in the one people. Genesis 34.16 says, Then we will give our daughters unto you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. Again, that same word, one, meaning a group of entities makes up the one people. Genesis 41.25, And Joseph said unto Pharaoh, The dream of Pharaoh is one. God has showed Pharaoh what he is about to do. Now, from the use of the Hebrew word, we can see that the word one can contain more than one entity, talking about a group of people, and there were several of Pharaoh's dreams. Now, what kind of oneness is there if it's not a oneness of person? Well, obviously, if we've studied the Trinity, if you've been paying attention with the previous lesson, it's the oneness of substance, of the attributes that I gave you in the chart on the Trinity. It's part of the term... Una substantia, trace personis, meaning one substance, three persons, which is what Tertullian used to clarify the Trinity. And the chart that I've given you, and please get it, download it from Bible 805 if you don't have it. On the one side, we, I have the one substance, that God is holy, just, merciful, love, truth, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, unchangeable, and eternal. That's how God is one, one in substance, but three different entities, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But did people in the Old Testament have any sense of that? Any sense of the idea that there was a triune God? And another word used in the Shema, I think, gives us a pretty good idea, a hint that they did. And it is the word God itself in the phrase, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This, again, is the plural noun Elohim. It's the same plural noun that was used in Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.26, where it is clearly talking about a plurality of persons. This is the same word used in the Shema. But these places, these three places, are not the only places that the same plural word Elohim is used in Genesis. In fact, 
This word is used for God 2,600 times in the Old Testament. Now, you can go to the Blue Letter Bible. I have the reference. The Blue Letter Bible actually lists all of them out, and I have the reference for it in the notes. But this, the plural, the use of Elohim, the plural word for God, that is what is used throughout the Old Testament. If God is the author of Scripture, and we believe he is, in the use of this word, God was consistently, 2,600 times in fact, communicating something about himself. That his oneness was not that of a solitary entity, but a plurality of persons that shared the same characteristics. But who are they? Who are the persons of the Trinity, and how are they revealed in the Old Testament? To answer, let's look at the Old Testament to see what it says about God and how it describes his encounters with people. Now, first of all, we have a challenge, and that is that the Bible says God can't be seen. Exodus 33.20 says, But he, God, said, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. And in the New Testament, it repeats this idea. John 1.18, No one has seen God at any time. John 6.46, Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. Here, of course, referring to Jesus. So clearly, both the Old and New Testaments tell us that God the Father cannot appear to humans. But then, how do we explain the following verses? where it says that God did appear to humans. In Genesis 17:1, it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. In Genesis 18:1, it said, Then the Lord appeared to him by the tabernacle trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. And then in Genesis 32:30, after wrestling with God, Jacob says, He called the name of the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And there are more. In when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up, he saw a man standing in front of him with a, a drawn sword in his hand. And the person says to him, As commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face downward to the ground in reverence. And then Gideon, he perceived that it was an, it, that he, the person that appeared to him, was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And then one of my favorites is, of course, in the story of Daniel's three friends who were thrown into the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar saw that not only were they not burned up, but there was actually four people there. And he said, Look, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Well, it was the Son of God. Now, what's going on here? Where the Old Testament characters clearly say they saw God. Now, understanding the Trinity, as we previously discussed it, very clearly explains it. If there's a plurality of persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, these are appearances of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. In addition to his participation at creation, he appeared at various times in the Old Testament as what theologian 
theologians refer to as the pre-incarnate Christ, meaning this was Jesus before he was permanently incarnated or enfleshed when he was born as a baby in the manger. He's also called the angel of Jehovah or the angel of the Lord. Now keep in mind the word angel is the Hebrew word malach and it means a messenger or representative. It's not the current cultural idea of a cute little creature with wings. Now this view is shared by many theologians. I'm going to share two comments from Precept Austin which is a great resource site for Bible studies. It's free and it has many many excellent commentaries. But these are two of the many entries that they had on the angel of the Lord. John Wall who is a highly respected scholar, he was the previous president of Dallas Theological Seminaries, he points out these arguments supporting the idea that these appearances of Jesus was um, that these appearances in the Old Testament was Jesus prior to his, his incarnation and he said one of the reasons is the angel of Jehovah of the of the Old Testament no longer appears after the incarnation of Christ we only see that particular person mentioned in the Old Testament not after Christ is incarnated he also says both the angel of Jehovah and Christ are sent by the Father and third, the angel of Jehovah cannot be either the Father or the Holy Spirit, for the Father and the Spirit are invisible to man. Warren Wearsby takes a, a, a different slant on it, but I think it's, it's really quite, quite good, where he said, The person who appeared to Hagar after she was cast out by Abraham is the first appearance in Scripture of the angel of the Lord, who is generally identified as our Lord Jesus Christ. In Genesis 16.10, the angel promised to do what only God can do. And in Genesis 16:13, Hagar called the angel God. These pre-incarnation visits of Jesus Christ to the earth were to meet special needs and to accomplish special tasks. The fact that the Son of God took on a temporary body left heaven and came down to help a rejected servant girl surely reveals his grace and love. Now we know who it is who appears to humanity. Let's now look at the God who cannot be seen. God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, is the one who speaks, decrees, and initiates many of the actions of the Bible. He's the one who gives messages to the prophets who then speak God's words to the people. In Kings, 2 Kings 17.13 it says, Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. Ezekiel 31 says, The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, prophesy. So, so far we've seen in the Old Testament how God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, is the one who commands, who gives the law, who speaks to the prophets so they can speak to the people. God the Father cannot be seen. Then God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is the pre-incarnate Christ, also known as the Angel of the Lord, who takes on human form at significant times in the lives of his chosen people. Now, what about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Well, the Holy Spirit came on people for specific tasks in the Old Testament. Numbers 27.18 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. 
And in Exodus 31, 2-4, it says, See, I have chosen Belazel, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs. And then Ezekiel 2, 2, it says, The Spirit came to me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. Here's an example of how God guided the prophets. But he could also be removed. As when Saul disobeyed, the Spirit departed from him, where in 1 Samuel 16:14 it says, Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. Here now is a summary of the Trinity in the Old Testament. The use of the word Elohim, a plural noun for God, is used over 2,600 times and describes both the individual personhood and the united characteristics of the Trinity. Now here, some individual passages clarify the work of each member of the Trinity in these ways. The first person of the Trinity, God the Father, is Lord of all. Though invisible to human eyes, he initiates, inspires, speaks, acts. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, appeared as the head of the Lord's armies and the angel of the Lord at specific time and was looked forward to as the coming Messiah. The third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, empowered those chosen by God for holiness and service, but was not universally and permanently given to believers as he will be in the New Testament. Though separate persons, they all work together in significant events and throughout the Old Testament. Here is just one example of it. This is following the Exodus. God the Father speaks to the people at Sinai. He gives them the law. God the Son, the pre-incarnate Jesus, is the God Moses speaks to face to face and who appears to Joshua as the commander of the Lord's armies. God the Holy Spirit inspires and gifts with skills the builders of the tabernacle in their obedience to God's commands. Now it's not as clear and explicit as it will be in the New Testament. In other words, no passage spells out what each person of the Trinity is doing at the same time, like at the baptism of Jesus, which we'll get to in just a minute. But if you are intentionally looking for it, you can see the work of the various members of the Trinity as you read the Old Testament. Then in the New Testament, the three persons of the Trinity are much more clearly seen, and as I just mentioned, a primary examples in the baptism of Jesus, where in Matthew 3, 16 and 17 it says, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased pleased. After the baptism of Jesus, Jesus continued interactions with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus was clearly in constant communion with God. He prayed for healing, for miracles. He simply interacted with him every day. It talks about how Jesus got up early to pray. The Spirit was also involved as this passage, and there are many like this, describes at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it says in Luke 4:14, Jesus began his ministry in the power of the Spirit. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out throughout the surrounding region. And then at the end of his earthly ministry, the work of the Spirit in Jesus' life is described in this way in Romans 8:11, where it says, The Spirit of him 
who raised Jesus from the dead. So he empowered him early in his ministry. He raised him from the dead near the end of his ministry. Not only did the Holy Spirit do this, raise Jesus from the dead, but now, because of Jesus' resurrection, he has a new relationship with us. Because today, all believers, not just those with a specific task to do, have a relationship and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised this in John 14 where he said, If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. He again promised the Holy Spirit just before his ascension into heaven when he said, On one occasion when he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, clarification. This is really important, and we're not going to get distracted on this, and I have more information for you on it, but it is very important to realize that the Holy Spirit in our lives is not a second blessing. The Holy Spirit is given to all believers at the moment of salvation. We do not receive the Spirit as a second blessing, as evidenced by speaking in tongues or laying on of hands or any other action. Acts is a historical book, not doctrinal, and many of the events it records are historically accurate, but not normative for the church today. Please see my lesson, What is the Charismatic Movement? For an expanded explanation of this, it's on www.bible805.com. However, there is a big difference and we need to remember this, between being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which every believer is, and being filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit, which is a condition based on our obedience. This is clarified in Ephesians 5.18, where it says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The Living Bible puts it this way, Don't drink too much wine, for many evils lie along that path. Be filled instead with the Holy Spirit and controlled by Him. You see, we can limit the Holy Spirit's power in our life, and we can make him sad by our behavior. Ephesians 4.30 says, Don't cause the Holy Spirit sorrow by the way you live. Remember, he is the one who marks you to be present on that day when salvation from sin is complete. Now, we get confused between the Spirit indwelling our life and being in control of our life. And I've created another chart. You need to go on Bible 805 to find it because it's really too complex to explain here. But where I illustrate how unsaved people, the Holy Spirit is not in part of their life. When you're a new and growing Christian, you're excited. You have the Holy Spirit putting your life in order. Now, when you sin, when you mess up, the Holy Spirit is no longer in control of your life. 
you reassume control and your life usually ends up a mess at that place at that time but a person who is growing and filled with the spirit the holy spirit's in control of your life on the throne of your life in charge of your life and your life is becoming all that god intended it to be again go on bible805.com for this chart on the holy spirit and the stages of the christian life Finally, about the Trinity and many other biblical truths, God doesn't tell his people. He doesn't tell us everything all at once. But he can be trusted to reveal all that needs to be revealed in its proper time, as he did in the progressive revelation of the Trinity. In the Old Testament, God the Father instructed and cared for his people, though he was not seen. His voice was heard, and message, his message, was communicated through the prophets. Jesus assumed human form in special circumstances, though for most he was looked forward to as the Messiah. In a similar way, the Holy Spirit only came upon special people to equip them for specific tasks. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus, while remaining fully God, became incarnate in human flesh and secured our salvation by his death on the cross. Jesus was in constant con- constant contact with God the Father, asking for his intervention in healing, wisdom, and help in many areas. The Holy Spirit empowered Jesus for his work and now indwells every believer immediately upon acceptance of Jesus as Savior and comforts, strengthens, and gifts believers for service and spiritual growth. Progressively, we get to know our triune God better and better. I trust this study of the Trinity has helped you understand your triune God, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Please download the charts and other materials and share them, as the Trinity is not a doctrine that's difficult to understand or explain. Our God wants to be known. He's revealed himself in his word. But as wonderful as this revelation of our triune God is to us, as we study his word, in reality, it's still through a glass darkly. Think how much more wonderful it will be when someday we experience God the Father and the Spirit more fully and when we see our Savior face to face. Then we will begin to truly understand the Trinity, though through all eternity we'll never grasp the fullness of it. That's all for now. Please check out the lesson notes and other materials at www.bible805.com. If this teaching's been beneficial to you, please consider supporting it with your prayers and gifts. Information on how to do that is on, again, www.bible805.com. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey, to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.